All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Avalanche. They're the layer one blockchain that is fast, stable, and scalable. You're going to be hearing all about them later in the show. For now, let's get into it. Sushi in 2021, they spent over $500 million of token emissions. That is so much money. Like, and you know, what happened, what would happen if they had that money now? You know, that would be a lot more useful in growing their market share. And so like, I think you keep incentives low, you keep cash flow going to the core developers, and then you wait till the last possible second to turn on the, the fee switch. Welcome to Bell Curve. Uh, we've got uh, the four of us here back again. Um, this week, we're starting off with a couple of shills. Permissionless is the number one crypto conference in blockchain, and last year's <laughs> Miami event was one of the most well-attended circuit conferences that I've ever seen. Um, it was in Palm Beach, DeFi. continue. Yeah, well, yeah, wherever it was. It's a hazy period of time. It was great. Um, and next year, they're doing it in... Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas, which is the capital of Texas. Um, and it'll be super fun. So, yeah, sign up now. Get your tickets. We're both going. And excited to attend. Yeah. You buried the lead, fellas. You guys are both attend. That's the draw here. We yeah. got the framework, we'll guys, right? Yeah, it'll be great. It'll be a good time. Man, we, we have a VP of marketing role open. I know who is not getting that role. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, man. The, uh, the other show that we've got for this week is 1000X, the new podcast coming out of Blockworks featuring – it's Avi who's leading it. Regularly, Avi, Fe Avi Feldman. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Avi Feldman will be leading it regularly. He is the head of digital assets at, uh, I believe, Golden Tree, um, and uh, General Crypto Native. Exciting to hear more about the market takes from Avi. And Jonah Van There will Borg. be takes. <laughs> there will be takes. They will be had. It's a great. It's a great episode. It's a great podcast, guys. It's going live on the Empire feed as well. So. Um, Definitely make sure you check it out. We're, we're big fans of the work. Um, I honestly uh, I honestly did listen to the first half, maybe the first third of it this morning. It's good. I'm, I'm going to enjoy that one. It's a really good first episode. It is good. Yeah, very good. Vance, he also um, calls you a, uh, he called you a smart guy. Said he thinks that you know some things in my conversation with him today. So you should, you should listen to it. Actually, Vance, that face value. Yeah, Vance was not going to listen. Now Vance is definitely listening to it. <laughs> Ooh. Like, Vance is like, Vance is like, Mark, they're men of culture. They're men of culture. Yeah. Actually, Vance got two shout outs on Blockworks podcast. We have a, a podcast that our analysts do called Zero X Research. Uh, and there's a in the hot seat. So basically someone who's uh, messed up this week. Binance was in the hot seat. And then there's the cool throne for like best take of the week. And Vance's uh, L1 uh, tweet thread uh, was the cool mm. throne take of the week. So yeah, I mean, you got some, <laughs> got some shout outs. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I mean, <clears throat> sounds like a good place to start. What was this thread? Give, I think we actually, discussed this. Yeah, the all we did. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but, you know, it seems like SBF put a lot of client money into Solana, and a lot of these all L1s are valued based on that comp. So could be an interesting year. 
you know, for those high value private projects, if you raise 200 or a hundred million dollars, I say, I saw today that Aztec raised, I don't know who leads your next round, but you know, you're going to have to prove your, your worth as a public network, which is going to become increasingly harder. So that's kind of my take. You know, I don't think there's, I've gotten a lot of shit for that take too. People have reached out and been like, you're so cynical. You know, how could you just like beat up on the builders like that? But like, I feel like at this point we should be trying to not view the past with rose colored glasses. Like we should, we should be actually trying to figure out like what happened and, and what that means for going forward. And that was my best approximation of, of the truth. I'm worried about getting outclassed in the, in the debate here, but I actually <laughs> think that Solana is probably one of the better risk reward bets that you could make in crypto right now. And I'll not, not financial advice, whatever. Ooh, that but, sounded a little bit like. <laughs> it's not financial advice, <laughs> Adam. All right, it's not financial advice. You can relax, buddy. Uh, but here, here, here let, me, let, me, let me tell you my uh, sort of thinking on this, and then you can tell me why I'm wrong. But the whole argument of SBF basically, which it looks like he was doing this, right? He was basically selling Bitcoin and ETH, so artificially depressing that price in exchange for pumping up his sand coins, uh, which you could sort of group Solana in that bucket. But those, that's not a fundamental argument why Solana may or may not have worth. That's a technical argument, right, for buying and selling over a specific period of time, right? So just because Sam bought Solana doesn't necessarily mean there's a – it doesn't affect the fundamental first principles use case for why Solana may or may not be valuable. I think overall there's going to be demand for what Solana values, which is they've got – you know, the way that they do their consensus mechanism and the composability that like – a I, I do think that there's probably some some use case for, for what they're building. So I don't know. I, I kind of think that if they make it through the crucible right now, if you – look, it's either not going to work or it's going to be a lot more successful than it is today. So that that would be kind of my my argument. So follow-up follow question there. How do you value or how, how should you value valuation theories of base layer chains? I'd say I guess it's like whatever you can sell the block space for essentially, right? So it's kind of tough to, there's like a fee market, right? So it's, it's sort of, I guess that's how I would roughly look at it from a high level. Exactly. And that kind of equates to revenue, revenue right. minus inflationary, which uh, inflationary tokens, you could say that's cost. And so yeah. revenue minus cost profit is generally how I would say, you know, <clears throat> this is like super simplified, but it is probably how you could value most of these businesses. The other way to look at it as well, the same way to look at it, but another angle is to say, okay, all the different apps that are building on top of the chain, the amount of transactions that are going through in each one of those apps and the amount that people are willing to pay or developers are willing to pay for the transactions going through those apps. So it's basically quantity times price equals revenue. <clears throat> the The reason why I think a lot of this comes down to what who is actually buying, who is selling, um, is that there is sort of a, a halo effect of wealth creation that drives a lot of people to choose one blockchain over another. And the <clears throat> same thing happens on the flip side, which is as you're on the rise and you're seeing, you know, if, if you're a developer building on top of Solana, chances are you either need to have Solana or you have some in general already. And as you start to see your purchases of Solana of Sol go up in value, it has this halo effect where you are now kind of feeling good about the ecosystem, feeling good about the blockchain. It has a um, reflexive up, but also a reflexive down perspective. And it sounds really simplistic to think about this, but when ETH was priced at $4,000 and some person who wanted to come into the ecosystem and buy 
I don't know, like an ETH and it costs $4,000, that like price point is actually pretty restrictive. And, and so I think there is actually some effect of not only prices going up, but whatever the price point is being really important as to how you should value you know, these ecosystems because the value of the ecosystems is the leading indication, is, is the leading indication of how many apps are building on top of it, where developers are going, will ultimately translate to revenue. <clears throat> Anecdotally, you know, there's just a lot of people that are, are pulling away from Solana for a number of different reasons right now. And so that kind of leading indication is sort of the, the reflexive down. Like, I, I want to get into this idea, like modular versus monolithic blockchain. Ultimately, I think like most blockchains end up being modular, but I think there is, there is a, there, it's a valid uh, thesis, I think, to have some use case for monolithic blockchains. But like, if I just close my eyes and I'm like, how do I think this is ultimately going to play out? I think the big challenge of crypto is trying to scale throughput while maintaining security and meeting demand. Like that's the challenge that crypto like blockchains ultimately have, right? They are kind of deluged by this unbelievable increase of demand and some of that like spills over into these alternative layer one chains. I think ETH's roadmap is ultimately a good roadmap, but it's not going to be able to scale proportionally with these insane waves of demand that come into crypto. Just by virtue of that alone, I just think there are going to be other layer one blockchains that end up succeeding. Like, I, I also kind of think some of this probably is just, and honestly, the other thing too is I think one lessons that investors might have learned looking back at this last bull run is that the only thing that is still really investable in crypto is layer ones. Like, that's, I do not mean this in any mean, like, way offensive. Like, the, the DAP builders are, you guys are fucking awesome. And ultimately, I think DAP should be more valuable than the layer ones they're built on. But guys, we've shown this chart uh, before on this, in, on this podcast. Look at all of the dApps on ETH denominated in ETH. It's like down-only charts. So I think what a lot of investors might have looked at is been like, look, dApps are just uninvestable at this point um, because you could just buy the layer one and history tells us that the layer one is going to return more than the dApps that are built on the ecosystem. And they're the biggest and most liquid investments that you can make. So I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm kind of looking at all of these things and being like, I think there's a decent chance that Solana makes it here. And it's like, okay, if you put some money in and you lose it, it could go to zero. But like so many people are so bearish on Solana at this point. It's kind of like, what do you make if you're right? And what do you make if you're wrong? And I think if you, I, I don't know, that that's sort of the way that I'm, that would be my attempt to steal man. Because uh, I agreed with a lot of what you said there, Vance, as well. I mean, just like on the topic of dApps, this week, actually, there became a new number one by TVL dApp, Lido. And this thing is just inhaling ETH. And it's just stacking ETH. And, and pretty much all of the charts that you look at for its revenue are up and to the right. Like, there are some apps that are really starting to demonstrate their value, even in a bear market. I don't know if the lesson of last market is, is you know, you should invest in the all L1s. I think it's more so, like, we need to prove out product market fit and use cases on the dApp level or else we're gonna be circular forever. Mike, what I would add to that, to your discussion, and I agree like on par, on the face of it, all of that is absolutely correct. The one variable that I'd add to all of this is modulo valuation, where the value of what you're buying something is a, a major component of how you can view whether or not like buying right now, buying in six months, buying six months ago would have been a good idea. <clears throat> and value, once again, comes down to valuation. You know, is this a good value investment right now? Even if it's down 90%, it could still go down another 90% before it hits zero. Like the, the value here is, is a very, very important thing. 
Um, and I think that that gets overlooked because all of these have different... If every single token project, if every single blockchain had the exact same number of tokens, we would be able to evaluate based on price. But nobody really thinks about like what's the market cap, what's the fully diluted market cap, how many tokens are left to be unlocked, what's the unlock schedule. Like Those are all things that need to be put into <clears throat> the evaluation of when to buy or when to not buy something. Uh, and I don't think that that happens enough, and I wish it did. I, I think you're totally right. And by the way, at some point, I would I would think that like DApps end up they should be like higher beta to whatever L1 they're built on. I would think that that's the way that it should work, right? Because they're slightly riskier, right? So you're taking more risk. Investors should demand a higher return, and they should be like high beta. So like Lido should basically be high beta ETH to like way oversimplify. Uh, but you know, you sort of combine that with whatever revenue and caught like they're. The, their discounted cash flow, I guess, but it, it doesn't really seem to perform like that today. So I, I hear you. Like I'm also on the train of like we got to build stuff that people want and charge fees for that and actually build sustainable businesses here. But I could definitely also see with my like slightly cynical goggles on, I could also definitely see investors taking like the other, the other side of that. The the three businesses that are working right now: selling block space, trading digital assets, and staking. That's basically the only things that have, you know, you can point to multiple options of them that have over, you know, tens of millions of dollars of, of revenue. Yeah. I feel like on-chain, uh, on chain, um, like, perps is, like, a pretty good, uh, like, GMX and DYDX also. Again, yep. not financial advice, uh, but I think those are pretty interesting. It's the financial advice section of the it's podcast. The, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit about, I know we've talked a lot about SBF in general, but his trial, uh, he got arrested this week, right? So again, uh, so he was actually supposed to testify in a hearing on the 13th, right? And he gets, we get, uh, you know, a tweet out the day before that he's been arrested uh, in the Bahamas and is now currently in Fox Hill, which is one of the top five apparently worst prisons in the world. I don't know. I'm not necessarily a fan of SBF, but I also just think from a humanitarian standpoint, like no one should be dumped in horrendous situations like that. And I well, don't think it's they, to be celebrated. The apparently contacted his family uh, and let him know that they're not actually infested with rodents anymore. So at least oh, uh, cool. at least Fox Hill is a little bit better than when it was reported. There, there's kind of this interesting story of this guy. His name's Victor. I think it's like Ozenki. He's a Czech-born businessman. He, he allegedly went to Harvard, uh, and he perpetrated like a few large financial scams. This is like in the 90s. Or no, it was like 1999, like 2000, that time horizon. And he bought Irish citizenship uh, when they had like a pay-for-passport program. And once he committed these frauds, he fled to the Bahamas. And in the Bahamas, he was uh, arrested and put into Fox Hill Prison. And he fought extradition. He didn't want to go back to the U.S. He didn't want to go back to Czechoslovakia. So he fought extradition. And he was in Fox Hill Prison for three years fighting extradition. I think it was from like 2005 to like early 2009. And he successfully fought extradition. And now he is effectively confined to the Bahamas. He's no longer you know, in legal trouble at all, at least in the Bahamas. He's still wanted by the U.S. and Czechoslovakia. But... He fought extradition. He kind of lived to fight the other day. And, you know, the kind of trade-off that he made was I'll spend three really bad years in Fox Hill for a lifetime of freedom on the outside. I wonder how much SBF is studying that, that guy and being like, you know, A, how do you survive in Fox Hill? And B, like, 
what is the calculus? Like, do you tap out that Fox Hill is bad enough and you just get extradited? Or do you try to fight it and stay in the Bahamas and potentially get some sort of lighter sentence in the, in the case of Victor, you know, whatever his name was? But I thought that was a very interesting historical precedent for what's going on. The, the other historical precedents that I was looking up over the course of the week is, you know, as the indictment or whatever process was unsealed, you actually got to see what charges were being brought and how many of them were and, and where they were coming from. Um, <clears throat> SEC, CFTC, and I guess apparently uh, the DOJ is still working on other, other potential um, crimes uh, as well. But the Southern District of New York has filed the charges. It's eight counts. If all of these counts are reached at the maximum level, what you're looking at is 165 years of prison, which is actually more than, than Bernie Madoff got. So don't expect that you know, there's going to be that level of, of uh, time that is served. On the flip side, <clears throat> you have Elizabeth Holmes, who perpetrated a $121 million fraud against her investors, and that was what she was committed, uh, you know, that's what she was found guilty of. $121 million of fraud against investors equated for her to 11.25 years in prison. Um, you know, the, the, the levels of fraud that we're talking about here, and at least in the charges that were unsealed, is, is to the tune of $1.8 billion. Um, so, you know, these are massive in relation to what was just happening with the Theranos case, but they're also against lenders and they're against customers. And so I think the the narrative of who this person is and, and how they're viewed, like the, the court of public opinion, it's it's going to absolutely sway against him. The other thing that I found in reading those indictments is it's very obvious that someone is talking. It, who? We don't know. But somewhat, it's not possible, it's not likely or reasonable to assume that they have this level of detail without sworn testimony, witnesses, and, and someone on the inside who knew who's probably talking right now. Um, so I mean, it just it just started coming out that folks are talking. Like, uh, what's the guy's right, name? Ryan, Ryan Salami. Ryan Salami, um, right. Ryan Salami went to the, I think it was the, the Bahamas authorities and told, yeah, and told them that he may have been committing fraud, that SPF was committing fraud by set. He, he told them the, like the story, it sounds like. So, it, and, and this is how it goes, right? They, they say, oh crap, I'm facing 50 years in jail. Let me get out of that. Say it was all SPF and, you know. But also like, you know, Ryan Salami seems to be doing the right thing. So there's definitely like good people that didn't know about this, seemingly that were higher up. Um, and I think that you yeah. know, shouldn't be lost. Like these no, people that's, how are, that's how it's supposed to work is that right. people come out and yeah, share the real story. But I think that that gets to the point of like how contained this information was at the highest levels of FTX. I, I mean, I mean it, but I think we know now, like after that, they said, I think one of the interesting points is that only three people had the, only three people at FTX had the required passwords to transfer funds to Alameda. It was. Uh, and this was, I think, according to Salami, it was SBF, uh, Nishad, and Gary. And Gary, yeah. Where's Where's Gary? Is Gary? Does Gary Where exist? Is Gary? Does Gary exist? <laughs> this I is mean, all a fever dream. You I can see the back is. of his head. <laughs> <laughs> so the other the other take that I had, and this one's maybe just like more because we, I, I share a, a similar hometown to SBF. Um, that you know, listening to the whole thing with his parents and hearing kind of the backdrop of what they uh, were going through, what their you know reactions were in real time in the courthouse, um, and you know just the backstory of what they've been doing over the last few years with uh, with with FTX. Um, I, I think uh, this is representative of peak Silicon Valley 
hyper woke, hyper liberal, uh, hyper elitist parenting. Um, and you know, you think about it, you've got SPF who obviously the, the child of the product of two Stanford law professors, um, goes to an elite, you know, uh, high school, uh, obviously MIT is super smart, super you know, educated, um, <clears throat> and definitely has a lot of the same political leanings as his parents, um, and isn't very well-rounded, is hyper-focused on this one category of the world, um, uses the, as in his words, you know, the, the wokest, woke perspective to uh, shield and conceal what he's actually in, intending to do. Um, and historically in Silicon Valley, you've had this very hyper-liberal, hyper-educated uh, group of parents that have been overriding, overbearing on their kids. And it's it's been you know kind of boiling over and getting crazier and crazier over the last couple of decades. Um, I would say it wasn't the case for me in my experience of living there, but just hearing I have two younger brothers and hearing about what that what their experiences were like or what their friends' experiences were like in Palo Alto, um, it really is like calling into question this entire like parenting and how do you how do you raise a kid in this in example in, in situation? It is. Um, I don't know. That's been one of the takes that I've had over the last few days, just listening to all of this. What, what, um, I, so I, I, I only skimmed that article basically, but I saw, you know, when his, when he was referred to as being a fugitive, you know, his mother, you know, quote, audibly laughed in the courtroom and stuff. I didn't, to be honest with you, I didn't even have a take. I was, is that sad or is it confusing? I didn't, I really didn't know what to think. I mean, probably his, in shock, right? Just like, you know, yeah. had gone fully to the loony bin, you know, temporarily as they deal with yeah. this. I have some empathy for the family situation. To be honest with you, like, I don't know. I've, I've heard and I, under, I understand how it looks. I, I get it. But I also, I also sort of think you have a huge blind spot when it comes to your family. And it's like, hey, I've got this son who raised a bunch of money from a lot of like other people. He clearly fooled other people as well. And, you know, couldn't, you know, his family was his, it's now been sort of intimated that he, that he was opening doors for him. And it's like, well, yeah, now that it turns out he was an enormous fraud and lying to everyone that looks really sinister, but also let's say he had actually been what he was representing publicly to the world. And let's say your parents give you the benefit of the doubt. Wouldn't you try to help your kid do these? I don't know. It just wouldn't have looked quite as sinister. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm extending way too much leeway here, but I just, when it comes to family stuff, I, I I always maybe give people passes when they don't deserve it. I don't know, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm I'm not let's, in the cool. Let's throne see on if that they take. were actually on the take. Yeah. I, I, yeah, like I'm I'm very much there for like the, you know, they didn't do anything wrong, but they may have. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I there was there was some interesting. Okay, I have another question for you guys. So Sam got arrested. You said eight counts, right? It was like it was basically everything that you might have hoped that he would give. It was there was wire fraud, conspiracy to commit wire fraud, uh, securities fraud, conspiracy to commit securities fraud. There was money laundering there. They really they threw the book at him, but they also threw the book at him one day before he was supposed to testify publicly in front of Congress and everyone. I'm, what I, I mean, what do you make of that? Honestly, I think it's nothing burger. Nothing the, burger. Uh, <clears throat> the timing of it, uh, sure. In retrospect, is suspect. Um, the, but you 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 saw his testimony. We all read his his you know supposed testimony that I think Forbes published. He was just gonna placate and pander and say, hey, I don't have all the data in front of me, but like let me tell you my side of the story and here's what I remember. I do not recall. I do not recall. 
Like, it was just going to be that whole dog and pony show. Um, you, I think you wouldn't have been able to get him to stick to anything or really, like, truly answer something that would have been more incriminating than, you know, basically Andrew Ross Sorkin uh, was able to accomplish. And because of that, like, I don't think that there's that much value. The indictment was filed, I think, the previous Wednesday and then was officially issued the Friday. So, like, the timeline here isn't, like, we got this thing in within 24 hours so that we could stop him from testifying. It, it's more so that, like, this this path was already getting – was happening. Um, but, you know, it, it wasn't something that we could really stop and it just happened to land the day before he was supposed to testify. But I don't know. Wait, can we just – this is how he was planning on starting – his testimony. Oh my god, this is so bad. He's such an idiot. <laughs> I would like to start by formally stating under oath, I fucked up. <laughs> that's, that's the opening line. The whole it doesn't get much better. For, it's just like, dude, come on. Uh, it's pretty classic. Pretty classic, Sam. Though I think there actually was one pretty interesting tidbit. So John Ray, the Enron guy, also testified, and I think he shed some pretty glaring light on stuff that people had suspected for a long period of time. So. It's not really news to people who've been following this podcast or deeply plugged into crypto, but Alameda did have an enormous exemption, right? They weren't, you know, their liquidation on FTX had been turned off. They uh, shielded the Alameda losses by moving it into an account titled Our Korean Friend. The weird Korean account. That was wild. Some that of those, you kind of have so to laugh at a little bit. Here's one thing that I thought was actually pretty interesting that didn't get an enormous amount of coverage. So apparently there was a blog post that was penned by Sam that was supposed to be that was going to be released in September, which is we came, we saw, we researched. So that was going to be a blog post that was announcing the closure of Alameda back in September. So you know, there's a lot of different <laughs> I'm not surprised, honestly. <laughs> like yeah. the secret to their success, the secret ingredient was crime. And then when they ran out of, you know, basically user balances, the ability to stop hunt people, you know, special exemptions that they could move around, like, obviously, then your next step is like, okay, how do we wind this down? But at that point, when you have a negative, you know, four or five billion dollar weird Korean account, like, it, it's just over. You can't do anything. Well, I've got a, so one of the questions that I have is like, okay, let's say they were able to accomplish shutting it down. What would that actually look like? And how would that materially have changed, like, the outcome of the events that happened over the last three months? One of the ideas that I had is like they probably would have been able to conceal a lot of the losses within Alameda. And you would have been able to like – so yes, Alameda had trading capabilities. They had a bunch of losses. But they probably would have been able to, to shift you know, money from right pocket to left pocket, left pocket to right pocket. I, I think you would have been able to fill a lot of the hole of FTX. But then it just got to be so big. And then when FTT bottomed and all of that, it just got to be too much. Um, but thinking back to where FTT was in September, there's a possibility that this could have at least been a better outcome. How though? There was no it, the the pile of money that they lost could never have been that big because it was a prop fund. They didn't take outside capital. So I've got a question for you guys. Did you see that they lost Alameda posted or SBF through his combined entities posted a loss of three point seven billion dollars in 2021? I, I looked at that and I was like, wow, that's a really big number. But how did they even lose that much? They didn't raise that much money. How did you even post a net loss? Even if it's just a, a loss that's realized on paper, shouldn't there have been a gain? All the gains came in 2021. 
how could you have posted that loss in 2021? There's, there's like one explanation for that. Like the one big drawdown in 2021 was the summer, right? That's when you could have theoretically lost a lot of money. Um, and if you look at the, the market, there's two peaks in 2021. There's like this organic peak around like when, Do- when Elon was shilling Dogecoin on SNL and like everyone was ri- like Sailor was, you know, going to get nation states to put Bitcoin on their, their balance sheet. Uh, like that was like the organic top. Then it died in the summer. And then there was the futures ETF run for Bitcoin where like we kind of ran it back turbo. My hypothesis is that they blew up shortly after Elon went on SNL. And then they tried to make it all back by doing this like kind of like degen gambling, trying to force a revenge pump on crypto, which like kind of worked. But then they somehow got out over their skis again and and got hurt more. But like the only time that they really could have blown out was the summer. And and both summers, both summers. I mean, I, I think they got really pretty badly trapped in, in Luna. And no, 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 this is, this is just 2021. I know. Just talking I know. about I'm those saying, I'm, I'm saying both summers. The, way, the only way that you would have been able to realize multiple billions is if you lost. But then the other way that uh, you can do this is you realize the loss. There's no tax loss harvesting rules in crypto. And then you can rebuy at a lower valuation. And then when you pull that out and you use that as collateral, so then you say, okay, I just rebought all this Bitcoin. It's at a lower cost basis. I realize a loss and that's it. My cost basis is now at whatever it was, 20K at the time. I'm able to actually go off and use it as collateral, which is not a taxable event when I pull out cash against that collateral to then go off and trade. And and so I think that's probably what happened. Um, But, you know, it takes some maneuvering from a tax perspective. I'd be very curious to see what their expected financials would have been for 2022. Um, But to just go back to it, you know, the the reason why I was saying Alameda could have concealed a lot of the losses is because they could have taken bad debt expense for Alameda and basically just like not paid back their loans. And so you, you probably would have been able to conceal and contain a lot of the FTX consumer losses if you just like basically had Alameda go insolvent and bankrupt. Got it. I'm uh, I'm gonna move us past FTX. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm putting SBF in my 2022 rear view. I think that's a good idea. I'm done with his ass. He's yeah. gone. Now there there are some interesting still implications of FTX. Like there there spill there's still a little spillover, right? Like um, there's some new stuff that came out with Genesis. It looked like, and then obviously, I don't know how much Mike and I should talk about the block, but like, you know, an, another media company. Was, was taking money from, from Sam. So maybe one of you guys want to do that story justice uh, just because Mike and I have a little, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll do the block. Um, yeah, I mean, looks like the CEO had taken a personal bribe from Sam and not told the company. And the circumstances surrounding the actual sale of the company are, are pretty murky, but our base case is that like nobody else at the block basically knew. Frank, Larry, the rest of the people I think this is just like a case of massive wrongdoing for, for just the CEO, basically. Um, and now the question for the block is, it's all like you guys respect the block, obviously your competitors, but like they are, they are a solid crypto journalism outlet. Frank's great, Larry's great. The rest of the team puts out a lot of research, but the organization was huge. Um, and I think they're gonna have to, you know, potentially right-size themselves. They're gonna have to focus on whatever's generating revenue. Cause I think they kind of had just like carte blanche from, from SBF and, and the funnel of, of loans from, from him. Uh, but I think they're, you know, good people. They're going to make it. Uh, it's just going to look a lot different and they're certainly going to be hopefully like a little bit more, uh, 
mean, they've always been pretty good investigative journalists. I think this was just a blind spot for them. And so maybe just like a, a redoubling of like, okay, who exactly is in this ecosystem? Who, who's, you know, potentially nefarious. All right, everyone, quick break from this episode to talk about our show sponsors, Avalanche. Many of you know Avalanche as the fast, reliable, and scalable layer one. Uh, Av the folks at Avalanche have a really great message for those of you who are in the crypto industry right now, which is bear markets are for building. So while a bunch of our uh, friends over in CeFi are, are kind of going through these struggles and travails, the folks at Avalanche have basically put their heads down and are shipping products that builders want. The latest solution, Elastic subnets. Right. And just to expand on that, Avalanche is consistently upgrading all of their platforms, right? So on the platform side, you've got Elastic subnets, you've got new VMs. On the infrastructure side of things, you've got Core, which Mike, I just, uh, I know you used that the other day. I was a, a bridge or. I was a bridge, bridge or. or. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so they're upgrading the infrastructure side with Core and Enclave. The chain has had like no downtime, super customizable for devs. Uh, yeah, if you're a builder, avax.network, uh, avax.network, great place to be. But do Yano and I as well. So you definitely go check him out, but click the link at the bottom of this episode. Click the link. Otherwise, we're not going to get any credit. Come on. Yeah, Give us click the, the link at the bottom. Right. Give us the credit. Exactly. So yeah, All big right. thanks to Avalanche. Um, yeah, you, I mean, you, it, you just had a great experience with them the other day uh, on the user side of things. So go check them out, guys. Thank us later. Let's get back to the show. I've got a, I've got a question for you just in terms of, you know, could be for the block, but it also could be for basically anyone that took money unknowingly, sort of, from... FTX and SBF, right? I mean, is there like a, you know, usually you raise debt from someone, then you got to pay them, you got to pay them back plus interest. But in this particular instance, the guy that you theoretically have to pay back plus interest to is bankrupt and in prison. So how does that look? I mean, it, it, does that end up getting clawed back by some sort of bankruptcy court? Or is it kind of just like, hey, you kind of got away with this because this person's in prison. I, I'm not a lawyer here, but how do you think that works? It would have been cleaner if it was an equity investment. In the bankruptcy process, you're basically selling assets, you're recouping whatever you can get, and then you're distributing cash from the estate. And the estate is the person who's managing out like the shell. John J. Ray is the estate manager for FTX. Um, for loans, that's another category. You know, those are things where you're sitting in a bankruptcy proceeding and you're saying, what assets do we have? Well, we have a bunch of loans out to people. What are our options for recovering that loan? Well, we can force them to pay it back and like go after them, or we can sell it to debt collectors for pennies on the dollar who are going to go after them as well. But like the common denominator here is that like you have someone coming after you for the money. And in this case, it looks like McCaffrey is going to be that person. It's not going to be the block. McCaffrey mechanically was the one who received the loan, and then he went off and spent you know, whatever it was to, you know, use that money on. The bankruptcy creditor, the bankruptcy state is not going to go after the block. They're going after Michael. Michael's problem is a different one. You know, like you had these loans or, or this equity purchase of the block. He will then probably have to sell that to try to make hold the creditors to the extent that he can. So just to, to be clear on this, there were three loans that were given to Mike McCaffrey. The first one was $12 million loan so that he could buy out the existing owners of the block uh, when he took over as CEO. The second one was a $15 million loan uh, given to his holding company. All three of these were given to his holding company to be able to have operations expenses for, for the block. And then the third one was so that he could have a, a penthouse in the Bahamas. Um, all of those went to his holding company. <clears throat> um, and I would imagine that the holding company, therefore, is the owner of the equity of the block. And so, you know, not only is it sort of like got to find chart a new path for the block going forward, you're probably going to have to restructure in a certain new way. 
Um, and then it's a question as, as to like who stays, how does it work? You know, negotiations with creditors is, is going to be the, the thing that takes a really long time. Um, but th this is going to be one of those negotiations and, and that holding company is definitely one of the debtors. Oh, I think, you know, if we have a take on it, it's like, honestly, our heart goes out to the people like the block. I know they're a competitor of ours. They do great journalism and it, it really sucks for the people that have been putting their life's work and their reputation into building something that stands for integrity. And I think it still does, but you know, to have this sort of smear on it, it's like totally unfair to the people that I think did super good work there and wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. So heart goes out. It's a, it's a crappy situation over there for sure, but I'm sure they'll be I'm sure they'll be okay. Um, uh, do you guys want to talk about sushi? governance there's actually something pretty interesting going on in that world all right so there's a proposal so jared gray uh for those of you guys who don't know or might not have been following this there was a pretty big relatively hotly contested governance vote for who is going to be the new head chef over at sushi and this guy jared gray won so he made a proposal early, earlier this week basically to redirect funds into the sushi treasury Right. So I'll just read you here what the proposal is in his words. Over the past two months as head chef, I've spent most of my time analyzing the operational and budgetary expenses and liabilities to ensure the project's long-term success. After reviewing expenditures, it's clear that a significant deficit in the treasury threatens Sushi's operational viability, requiring an immediate remedy. In my original post, Sushi operated with an annual runway of $9 million U $9 million US dollars. However, after my detailed review, we've reduced that requirement to $5 million US dollars. We made the reduction possible by renegotiating infrastructure contracts, scaling back, underperforming, or superfluous dependencies, etc., etc. However, uh, as previously stated, Sushi is currently near full distribution of its token supply. This is important. We'll, we'll get back to this. And has yet to capitalize on opportunities to diversify its treasury and provide necessary liquidity for ongoing operations. The treasury currently provides for 1.5 years of runway. Therefore, the situation requires immediate action to ensure sufficient resources for uninterrupted operation. So I propose, I'm skipping a little bit here, I propose setting Canpai to 100% of fees diverted to the Treasury multi-sig for one year or until new tokenomics are implemented, helping return Sushi's fiscal resources to the competitive level. An additional benefit of Canpai's solution to the Treasury is the diversification of assets, which limits the need for market selling Sushi, which is a net positive for stakeholders. In addition to Canpai's revenue, the Sushi team increased its funding by securing several multi-million dollar partner deals. Yet relying on business development deals is only part of the successful business model to secure Sushi's future. Do you guys, I, I've got some, some sort of thoughts on this, but what is your high level take about this? So six million to run this organization is, is very cheap. I think it's the first thing. If you look at the actual line items of the salaries, that's kind of what people, you know, most focused on. 500k for the CEO, 400k, 400k for another person, 300k for a few engineers. That is expensive, but like this is not a traditional technology job. Like you were taking on substantial risk by running one of these organizations, and like if I was him, I would probably be wanting that much as well. Um, sushi's cheap to run. You know, it's five million. I, I was looking up MakerDAO's last quarter expenses: thirteen and a half million. So it's like 3x the cost to run Maker for one quarter that it is to Sushi for a year. And like generally where we want to see DAOs, like DeFi DAOs, and there's like a lot of them, you know, if you're small, 5 million makes sense. If you're big, 10 to 20 million makes sense. But like that's generally the range of acceptable inputs. Um, 
I think you're going to see a lot of like this, like, ooh, we've minted all the tokens. We've given them all away. Like, it's time to redistribute the wealth. You're going to see a lot of token migrations. Like, when Lend did a token migration to Aave in the last bear market, you know, that was to solve a lot of the problems that are endogenous in this proposal. Um, but this is kind of what it costs. And, and I think people on the Sushi token side, the community, are, are pissed about, well, the whole thing about Sushi is that you're going to give fees to the users and Uniswap doesn't do that. And now you're having to double back and say like, okay, we need to actually recapitalize the treasury for this to keep going. And I think the answer is just like, do you want like more of a much smaller pie or do you want this thing to actually like live on and grow and succeed? And, you know, the go-go bull market, everybody just wanted tokens and yield. But now it's like you have to opt in to double down on this organization because there's just not going to be the same level of fee sharing that there was a year ago. The economics just aren't there. And it's just part and parcel of the whole deal. I think uh, one of, yeah, to reiterate everything that Van said, kind of aside from the operations and the operating costs, I think one of the more interesting things here is um, just what happens with long-term versus short-term token models. And if you have the long-term perspective of, you know, what this token is, where it'll be, um, and you know exactly where it's going to be in five, ten years from now, you're probably going to be wrong. And so what happens, what you need to in- implement, I think, is is usually some sort of, like, inflation schedule, some sort of, you know, change element that can be implemented. Um, <clears throat> what was, I, I think it was Wi-Fi, Y-Earn, that minted an additional 20% of tokens to give to the core developers, so that they were incentivized because remember 100% of those tokens went to users of the platform, not the people who were building it. So like you have to have the right incentive structures to be able to persist these in the same way that you would a technology company. And the problem that you have with token models is that when you have a token and you give 100% of it away, 100% of it is gone. When you have an equity in a company and you have 100% that's gone, Next round, next time you raise money, there's also an additional re-up of the employee stock option pool. There's additional uh, shares that are created. So you're always increasing that 100% when you do subsequent financings for companies. And you just don't have that mechanism with tokens. Um, And so there isn't a natural point where you have the same corollary with with companies. And so I think people are going to have to figure out ways to do that. All right. Can can you comment on... uh, So... That exact observation, right? So Sushi basically distributed an enormous amount of tokens, right, to its community. Same thing with Yearn, right? But the way that works in equity, this this is a little bit of a a funny thing that I think you could make an argument that it sort of comes over from Bitcoin because the meme of Bitcoin is 21 million hard cap, never going to be another one, fixed supply, yada, yada. And that sort of got borrowed, right? Because Bitcoin was the first one that did it. That makes sense for like a hard money commodity store value type thing. I don't think it necessarily makes sense for a lot of these protocols and the way equity financing happens, which is you issue new tranches of equity every time you raise a subsequent round of capital so that you have a smaller piece of a much larger pie. It's kind of a better way of doing it for a lot of these. I mean, do you have commentary on just the, what do you you think about that? I'm sort of looking at it being like, why do we do it this way? I think if you're going to have a finite supply of the tokens of your protocol, you should have like a finished version of the product in mind. Is it going to take a year to get there? Is it going to take two years to get there? But like at some point, you need to kind of take your hands off the wheel and be like, we're not actually governing anymore. This is just done. And like that's the model that works with having a finite token supply where you can't have any more and you're making decisions that are supposed to be not reversible. 
And I think like a lot of projects are getting there. Like MakerDAO doesn't need inflation. Lido doesn't need inflation. Uniswap doesn't need inflation. Like they're kind of like finished products. And I think that's why that works. Um, but if you're building something that looks more like a company where you're pivoting the product, you're releasing new things, you're doing this, you're doing that, you're doing the other thing, like just like equity, you're going to need the ability to inflate your supply, to pay people, to keep operations going, to raise more money. And so like, I think we just had this mental model that we copied from Bitcoin, but it doesn't actually work in all, in all kind of scenarios. But I'd actually, I'd actually test that. So I, I think uh, every single private round of any equity financing, usually for a technology company, has new, new class of stock and new refresh of employee stock option incentive pool. What <clears throat> I think also happens with publicly traded companies, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but last I checked, it was somewhere between 2 to 4% of stock-based compensation for mature publicly traded companies happens every single year. So there is a natural inflation for like products and services that are done because you still have to incentivize people to continue to maintain them, to work on them, to make them better. You know, even even like Yahoo back in 2010 when it wasn't absolutely, you know, doing anything, it still had to pay people in stock-based comp to be able to get people to show up every day and keep the lights on. And it's not the exact same with the protocol because you put it out on chain and it exists there into perpetuity and users pay the cost of operating it. But there is an element of like, if you are 100% deployed with all of your tokens and you can't do anything else, that literally means that it's over and it's done. And I, I don't think any of these things are really even close to getting there. Even even the Lidos and the Uniswaps and the Matrix of the world, I, I think that they're close maybe to having the product that they want, but if they wanted to change anything, you know, how do you get people to do that? If you're gonna have a decentralized protocol, both in terms of upkeep and governance, at some point it has to be done. You can't keep going back to the well, like that's why Bitcoin is powerful, that's why Bitcoin only has 21 million, it's like it's done, it's over, like, and that's my vision of a decentralized protocol. And even in Vitalik's roadmap, he's like, in five years, Ethereum is gonna be a finished product. We're not gonna to have to govern anything more, maybe a couple of EIPs here or there, but like, we're not gonna need the Ethereum Foundation, we're not gonna need all these discretionary tokens. Like, I think that's where these should be going, at least. Hmm. Do you do you think because the way that I would sort of view it is like it's it's all about the return that you're getting for that inflation, right? So, Michael, to your point about okay, so you inflate by two percent every year—is that good or is that bad? I don't know. What did you get for that two percent inflation? Because if the workforce that you use to procure that, you, you know, with, with that additional issuance makes the value of the company go up 5%, then congratulations, you had like 100% return on that inflation. So for me, it's less of a like, is inflation good or bad? It just depends on what you're getting for that inflation. 100%. I mean, we talked about this when we were talking about the valuation model for base layers. It, it's what's the revenue and subtract out the net inflation. And that's, yeah. that's basically how you get to like net profit, let's say, for a decentralized yeah. protocol. Mm. I also think one other little bugaboo is... Um, this idea, and we had Chris Berninski on the interview part of the show this week, and he, I think, put it pretty eloquently. You know, we talked about when is it appropriate to basically return funds to token holders. And there was this whole kind of emphasis on cash flowing protocols for a period of time. And that was always the appeal to sushi, right? That you got paid out, basically. And there's this idea that when there's a bear market, <clears throat> well, everyone's like, well, hey, I'm already down 90% on, on my my token here, right? And what, now you're going to take away my, my payment too? It's like, well, yeah, dude, but you could be down a hundred percent, you know, if, if you're not careful, like things have to be sustainable. And the, you know, the other thing too is like, I, I take your point, Vance, at some point, these things need to be finished, but I would argue almost nothing in crypto with the possible exception of Bitcoin is 
finished. You know, I mean, I so before something is finished, why are we returning funds to token holders as opposed to reinvesting that basically for labor? Yeah. You shouldn't be. You should be waiting as long as possible. You, like, start with the assumption that these markets are far larger than we can even anticipate and mm. that market share is the most valuable thing if you look at a discounted cash flow in, in 10 or 20 years down the line. Everything that I would you know, guess would be keep internalizing the economics, keep improving the product, keep trying to get it to a finished point, and then at some point maybe you can start returning cash flow to token holders, to the DAO, to whatever. But if you don't get that market share, it's not going to be worth anything. And you can see the reverse where you, you know, spend your, your wad of tokens too early. You know, and, and Sushi in 2021, they spent over $500 million of token emissions. Mm. That is so much money. Like, and you know, what, happened, what would happen if they had that money now? You know, that would be a lot more useful in growing their market share. And so like, I think you keep incentives low. You keep cash flow going to the core developers. And then you wait till the last possible second to turn on the, the fee switch. And then that's how you have like the, the parabolic, like, okay, Uber started in what, Michael, like 2005, 2004, Nine. 2009. Have they ever paid a dividend? No. No. Like, but, you know, it's been uh, like a decade. I think that's the right time scale, at least a decade. The, the, uh, yeah. The, the other example. Ethereum, the same thing with EIP 1559 and the merge, like started in 2014. 2022, 2023, like that's the first time they ever talked about giving people money for holding Ethereum. The, the other example that I think about, I don't, I don't know, like I was living in San Francisco in 2013 through 2017, and um, that was the heyday for startups basically paying you to use their products. And it would be like, you get your dry cleaning basically like 90% off and they, you know, this company Rinse would literally walk up and give you a cookie every single time you got your dry cleaning delivered. And like, you know, some so, guy that you got to lovely. know, but like Sounds you so had funny. this like sprig concept, which is basically like, you know, DoorDash before that blew up and, and it would like deliver you like lunches and like there were all these things. All the, all sure the free Blue Apron meals. Remember those? <laughs> those were exactly. awesome. I got lunches for $3 a day when I moved to the I city. remember this. You did. I, I remember you know, did this actually. And I mean, great. Uber. It was subsidized. Uber lunch. Pool. Yeah. <laughs> Uber Pool usually literally would cost three dollars and twenty cents to get across San Francisco. Yeah. Um, like Uber, there Uber were just was five dollars these... anywhere in New York. You go, you I know. Go, like uptown yeah. to Fidei and five dollars. Yeah. Dude, it's like so, seventy dollars now. It's so expensive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so think about that, and think about the correlation between that and, and everyone who is overspent on their marketing budget equivalently with tokens or with emissions, whatever you want to call it. And sure, maybe some of those implemented uh, you know, gains in, in market share, but I bet 99% of them did not work out. And most of those companies are probably gone. And I know most of them, the ones that I just listed are. Um, it's the exact same thing. If you, if you spend your marketing budget too soon or if you use it frivolously uh, and you don't maintain that market share or it's not good spend, it, you're not going to last long. Yeah. I also think that I'm gonna, there were some bad lessons that were learned in this era of like easy money and money printing and blah, blah, blah. And like share buybacks, like all of this is a question of like, where are you in the life cycle of the company, right? Share buybacks make sense when you can't more profitably allocate that capital towards like organic growth, like R&D or acquisitions or something like that. And you're like, look, I don't really have any good investments on the horizon all the returns are below the cost of my capital anyway. I'm going to give this back to shareholders by buying my my own stock back. But I think what that has morphed into in this like wacky last two years is 
yeah, we should buy the stock to support the price. <laughs> like that, and a lot of people took that lesson away and put that in and use. I see some of people talk about this in crypto land like this. Like, yeah, go out there and like market buy the token. It's like, what are you talking? What are you talking about, dude? That is a poor use of capital. Yeah. First of all, market buying a token right now, you're just not going to make any impact. Like, like you just don't have the size to do it. The reason that it worked when Carl Icahn, you know, there was this legendary meeting where he t- told Tim Cook to start buying back the Apple shares. Like, they had like billions and billions and billions of dollars to do it. But like, this is not just a company thing. This is how the stock market works. This is what investors want to see. When you look at a stock and you're an institutional investor, one of your main questions is, what are the buybacks like? What are the employee stock compensation like? This has been institutionalized, and it's not going away either. Like people are very quick to write the eulogy of like, oh, free money and you know how bad it was and you know how stupid we were and how it's never going to come back. But like the ten years at like three point four. Like the the average ten year yield from twenty ten to twenty twenty was two point one. Like we're not that far away. Like it's not like we've gone to like eight to ten percent yields, flogged ourselves and been like we're never investing in technology again. This all of this stuff is still built in the stock market. All of this stuff is still coming back. I think we just have a little bit of a hangover from like a little too much, a little too soon. But I, let me let me also add on the on the stock buyback part in particular. You know, that's not necessarily just like a, a one for one or like you know we're doing this or we're doing that. Like we don't have anything to invest in, therefore let's you know give it back. It's part of a, a cohesive strategy and a cohesive plan. But also, you know, the reason why you buy your stock back isn't, I mean, it can be to support the price, but but usually what it's for is that adds to the treasury stock that the company then owes, owns, and you can give that out as stock-based compensation. And the ability to say, okay, like we are adding to the coffers of the co- company, we think that our stock is relatively undervalued right now, is usually a good sign with a stock-based or stock buyback because, you know, they probably know the internals of the company just as well as you know, the, the CEO. Um, and they're able to tell whether or not the co- whether or not the stock is undervalued. So, uh, I think there are multiple reasons for stock buybacks, but you know it is, it is part of the the options and, and the plethora of things that you can do as a company. I would have more sympathy for that argument if companies weren't absolutely fucking horrendous at deciding when to buy their stock. Like you can look at all this data; they buy the top and they sell the bottom, except for one guy. John Malone, who's like famously good at this, this yep. uh, he's a sort of telecom tycoon who was really, really good at buying his stock when it was low and issuing stock when it was high. And Is that... he the T-Mobile guy? No. 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 What happened to that guy? Cable, you rolled up. Cable Cowboy. Still kicking. Still, Still kicking. kicking? <laughs> yeah. I missed that guy. You <laughs> used to watch his like Sunday cook-offs. I think John Malone is now the largest landowner in the entire United States. I believe yeah. that's correct. It's yeah. either him or Bill Gates or Ted Turner or maybe Ted Turner is. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it'd be very interesting. I wonder if anyone I'm uh, on Yano's recommendation. I'm listening or I'm watching this documentary on Rupert Murdoch. It's on HBO. It's pretty good. Empire of Influence. And my my mom actually just read the Ted Turner documentary and she their lives, you know, supposedly as guys on the total different ideological spectrum. There are mirror images of these in in a lot of different respects. Yeah, I've just you should just be take wild a back then. Like, uh, same, same with John Malone, by the way. All three of them. So I I, I watched this Rupert Murdoch documentary, and then I read John Malone's biography and Ted Turner's bi- biography. They're all like these media tycoons. Just they just bet the farm over and over and over again for like 
40 years in a row. Like every three years, <laughs> they make a bet the farm decision. So it's much not. survivorship bias in the it's, biographies that you read yeah. versus the ones oh you don't. Oh my God. Yeah. 100%. 100%. And like people just told this, these guys, like, this is a bad idea. <laughs> There's a low likelihood of success for a minimal outcome, but they just kind of rolled the dice and it ended up working for a lot of them. They also both but, let's, let's, let's talk about, Africa. let's talk about 2023. Yes. All right. In, yeah. in what sense? What do you want to talk about? I don't know. How, how are you guys feeling? <laughs> All that I, stuff. I, have a, I have a question for you, Vance. Are you, um, this is not about 2023. Are you guys buying? So there's, I, we just started seeing like, the, the venture stuff at like 80% discounts, like some of these later stage stuff. Are, do you guys buy those just out of curiosity? We have. We look at, we look at everything. I? Good to know. <laughs> yeah, hard maybe. I honestly no, no, feel- I mean, just because we have to be accurate, we have. Uh, we continue to look at stuff like that. Got it. All right, now we can talk about 2023. <laughs> I, well, first of all, we I want to do a, like a, a more- all-encompassing predictions episode. We should do that to kind of cap off the year. But I also think I honestly am going into 2023 feeling very optimistic, like very positive. And I sort of think it comes across a couple different dimensions, which is there was like a period of time, like post Luna, when everyone was like, oh, this has got to be the bottom. And Yano and I used to have these conversations where it's like, I don't think so because everyone's still way too angry. There's like a lot of emotion and angry and people are engaging and yelling at other people. And now we've sort of entered what feels like this very is apathy, you know? And when it isn't apathy, you know what people, okay, so people at the peak of the bull market, this is purely a sentiment based thing, but people used to get very angry when you would even suggest something negative, right? When you like breathe the word of, uh, you know, possible skepticism about like, X, Y, or Z thing, people would yell at you. Now we get a lot of comments on like our YouTube. Go to, The best contraindicator is the BlockWorks YouTube uh, comment section because whenever you say something bullish or positive, people get mad at you. <laughs> They're like not having it, you know? And I don't know, FTX, you know, which is a top three crypto exchange imploded and we didn't really put in new lows. So I'm kind of just like, I don't know. I feel sort of positive uh, going into the new year, to be honest. I share, I share the optimism. Um, I read a lot of like financial history, not because like I'm trying to like out macro people. I just like, like to understand the different cycles and how people felt and, and you know, all that stuff. And, and the cool part about, you know, the history of finance is that there's literally, you know, oh, 200, 250 years of, of data about how things traded, what happened after big collapses, what happened after big booms. And, you know, mean, rever mean reversion is, is, a seriously powerful force. You know, if you look back, it's very rare for you to get smoked twice, you know, back to back, you know, one year and then the next. Usually there's some sort of at least relief. And so, you know, when you're up 20 or 10 or 15% like it was in 2021, you naturally get nervous about the downside. But now it's like, I don't know, unless there's centuries of mean reversion data that's wrong, uh, feels like it'll at least be a little bit more accommodative and washing out all of the, the bad players you know, helps to, that, to add to that story. The worst thing that we could do is just carry some, some bodies with us into 2023. I would like to leave those behind if, if at all possible. The, the thing that I'd add just from a macro perspective, I think from a micro perspective, my quick take is that things are starting to work. Like we're starting to see games that have, you know, hundreds of thousands or potentially, you know, single digit millions monthly active users. Like 
things are launching, you start to see the revenue numbers of some of these staking options and, and providers and like those are working as well from a business perspective. So like the the the, the green shoots of the micro side of it are, are popping through and I bet that they expand over the next six-ish months, I would say. The, the overhang that I'm thinking about right now is um, what happens once uh, Shane High goes in. Like that feels like the last piece of FUD that, oh my God, you've got 15 million ETH that's about to become withdrawn and sold on market. Like obviously that's not gonna happen, but like that's one of the big kind of like variables that I'll be looking to in March when that finally goes through. But I'd say on the macro side, the way that I've been thinking about it, and Vance and I had a conversation this week with you know a couple of other friends in the space, and um, basically the the stock market has been a tale of two cities over the last twelve months, maybe like the last fifteen months, where you've had you know the S and P five hundred is only fifteen percent off of its highs right now. It's not a bear market in the sense of like the global U S economy. Uh, unemployment still doesn't budge, even you know this this week with the new uh, unemployment numbers. Like the economy is still working. But the thing that's the other city has been anything that's a risk asset. You know, growth stocks are down 70, 80, 90%. Crypto is obviously taking a shellacking. And I think what we're going to start to see is like a shifting back of the subcategories of the market that have done well, you know, energy and materials and uh, chemicals, like they've all, they've all done really well this year, uh, back to some of the risk assets, some of the growth assets that, you know, just got hurt over the last 15 months. Um, that's probably how I would peg it, but I don't know if you know we're gonna have like a banner year in the in the S and P writ large. I think we're just gonna have like subsectors doing much better, and, and the ones that have been doing well probably a rotation out of those. But last last thing I'll add to to add to Michael's point, if you look at Goldman's twenty twenty three outlook, uh, the two top ideas that they have are short the S and P, and then commodities super cycle. So they think commodities are going to go up 43% and they think short S&P is going to net you like, you know, 20% or something like that. Same people who were telling you last year that we were bound for all-time highs this year and that long S&P was the consensus. Okay. So there was a – all right. So I was actually at the Solana, like the breakpoint, like top signal of all top signals. And I actually remember somebody saying at this crypto thing – because people back then, this was a legitimate thing people debated about. Do you believe in the super cycle? And someone was telling me how... Do you believe in Santa Claus? <laughs> <laughs> no, someone was actually telling me how every couple of years in commodities, someone comes out and calls it a commodity super cycle. And it never, ever, ever is. And they were like, oh, well, like, we see this in commodities. And like, that's why I don't believe in the super cycle for crypto. And it's just, at the time, I was like, sure. eh, it actually makes a lot You're of sense. Like, you don't you don't understand Suzu, man. You you just you don't, <laughs> you don't understand the logic very, of the new revan- I'll be it's honest. I, n- <laughs> I never knew what revanchist was. I never Googled it. I've seen it come up on Twitter quite a bit. I've never looked into what that term meant, but I will forever associate it with Suzu. Suzu so. and its big brain. Yeah. I mean commodities are are very similar. Like I grew up uh, in Canada and, and part of my family is in like the commodities business in, in Vancouver and British Columbia. But like they were the original people who um, there was this one year where uh, oil went up like two or three X or something crazy like that. Uh, one of uh, like the, the rich kids that I knew growing up, his dad bought the Calgary Flames. They won the Stanley Cup. So like you had like the commodity super cycle, you won like the Super Bowl of Canada. And then, like, there was this whole theory that, like, you know, Canada was just going to be the biggest country in the world and, like, we were going to take over the Americans and all that stuff. 
And you know, a year later, there's bumper stickers around Vancouver and, and Calgary saying like, "Lord, give me one more supercycle. I promise I'll sell the top this time." And and like you know, like getting worked and coming back. Like this was a lot of the story of like at least the businesses that my my family was in. Um, but it's the same thing. You know, people always think it can go up forever, and then it inevitably doesn't. Yeah, I'm looking for there's a uh, there was a chart on on the margin. I, there's a guy named Urian Timmer over at Fidelity who does like macro analysis for them. Um, I like that guy a lot. And he showed this chart that basically forever changed how I thought about Bitcoin as a, as a long-term investment. And you, he basically showed, I'll see if I can like pull it. And I was just looking for it on my email, but I can't, I switched computers, so I can't find it. But basically he showed like the very long-term returns of cash, gold, equities like debt like cash plus debt and over, over like long periods of time and what you can really clearly see is equities crushes everything else like it's not even close there's an enormous gap in between everything but what gold does over periods of times it has these like spikes it has these spikes that like it's because because it's the exact thing that everyone says that it does it protects your purchasing power over a period of time and it's a hedge against like when there's uh, crazy debasement or inflation or, or whatever it is. And it just made me think, I mean, it's the, it's the thing that people have always said, which is you want your assets to be productive. And it, it kind of made me think more of Bitcoin as a trade that is like a long-term hold into eternity because it doesn't, it doesn't compound. Um, it's interesting. I just looked at the price. Gold's down 6% this year. You know, you're only like marginally better than the S&P 500, where you might get a dividend too. Yeah. No, I'm 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 with you on the gold thing. I it would be tough to own, but <laughs> I'm I, my mind is still blown that gold has a 12 trillion market cap. How does that make any sense at all? I oh sorry, I have a theory about this too, dude. When it there was, if you go back and look in the history of gold, like the vast majority of golds gains all came over like two periods two periods of time right when they uh made it legal basically to own again and then like once in the 70s or 80s and that crazy volatility i think it just imprinted on one like generation that you just hold this thing and it goes up forever and that that imprint that psychological imprint has carried it as an asset class to this to this very day for like that's, 60 that's years yeah for like 60 years because people like I learned my lesson. I don't sell gold. And I just think they – I respect the people who hold the gold. But yeah, yeah, I, that's kind of what I think. How, how much of the gold reserves – so wait, so gold has a $12 trillion market cap. How much of that is uh, held by countries? Because it's you got to assume the U.S. has probably – U.S. definitely has the largest gold reserve. They, I bet they have like I – I bet the U.S. has like 10% of that. I bet they have like a trillion. I think All more right. than – I think Top. more than that even. Top oh. 10 central bank gold holdings. Oh, can we actually guess invest, at this? Investinggold.com, which is a, a real website. You, okay, you want to go first? What do you think the United States has? Ooh. I'm going to say less than a trillion. Yeah, way Yeah, far less. Um, okay. Yano, you want to go for them? 100 billion, I'd say. I, I oh, bet they, what, what, what do I think they actually have? Yeah, somewhere between 500 billion and a trillion. 
I think I know the bank that has the most. Well, Can I just well, skip to... Yano guessed a range, which was not actually allowed. Uh, so you've been spoiled. Bro, you said 100 billion. <laughs> you guessed a $500 billion range. The other contestants put Smart, it in a specific Yano. value. Smart. Uh, it, it is $528 billion. And, and strangely, uh, all right, for bonus, what's the second biggest country? Russia. And how much uh, do they have? One of the European countries. or It's either Russia or... Or it's either Russia or one of the top Europe, or probably Germany or. All right, Germany I'll give or, I'll give you a hint. It's culturally on the nose that they would have this much gold. India. Nope, that, that is a good guess though. Germany. There we go. Very wow. German to hold a lot of gold. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, wow, very conservative. Wait, 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 and what do what do we what do we think they have relative to the? Uh, I bet it's one quarter of what the U.S. has. Yeah, I was gonna say a hundred. They've got about half. Oh, wow. Damn, we're bill. There's a okay. good Economist article that's saying, like, how Russia all the have? autocratic nations are buying up gold this year. Yeah. So Russia has about $100 billion, quarter of what the U.S. has. Yeah. They've been buying. Yeah, they, they've, like, totally petered off. But if you're in Russia, I mean, people really disregarded this when we froze all those central bank assets for Russia. And... And people said, well, look, it's a it's a signal of strength for the dollar. But come on, like put yourself in the position of an, a nation that does not have their interests aligned with the United States. I mean, you have to be developing contingency plans, right? Is that a crazy leap in logic? Like if your largest adversary on the political, the global stage can just freeze your reserves at any given time, it's not going to be tomorrow. But like you have to be developing a contingency plan there, right? I would think. That's what Felix Zeloff who did forward Zuloff was saying. Yeah. Mm. I was listening to that on the treadmill this morning. I was like, this is way too depressing. I gotta take this out. He is, uh, <laughs> he's, he's a big proponent of like the autocratic nations are going to buy commodities and bury them in the ground. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if that even really matters if it's on the margin. Like these things are so small. I've been listening to Felix Zuloff for a while. He's pretty on the money. I'm not gonna, if you listen to him over like periods of years, he's, he's pretty good actually. Um, but I hope the I hope he's not right because yeah his his predictions have gotten like pretty dire. Although he sees uh, he thinks the bottom is coming in like Q one or Q two of this coming year, and then one big up and then big down. The, the thing about like all of these guys is like you know I remember fuck what was it like four years ago listening to Kyle Bass. The Hong Kong dollar is going to zero. We're going to short the hell out of it. I'm getting massive leverage. And I'm like on these foreign exchange sites trying to figure out how I can like short the Hong Kong. <laughs> it's gone nowhere. Literally the whole trade has gone nowhere. You know, China's going to blow up for the past 10 years. You know, technology's overvalued for the past 10 years. Like everybody's got an opinion. I just don't think his is like well-founded in reason. Inflation's going down. Like it's like yeah. all of the components negative other than rent. You know, like you can really see it. So I don't I don't. Maybe he's just smarter than I am, entirely possible, but I don't know where it comes from. One call out, uh, just on the inflation point, I don't know if you guys follow Trueflation. Uh, yes. it's, it actually has like a, a crypto component where they're, they're putting it on chain, I think via, via Chainlink. Uh, but anyways, they've created their own proprietary, um, and I would argue probably more accurate in real time CPI measure <clears throat> or, or alternative to CPI. Um, someone figured out that their their predictions and their subcomponent predictions are exactly correct. They're just they're just uh, move forward three months. 
So the I think the October one was the equivalent of the December one, and like they nailed every single component and the top line number. Um, it was kind of a fascinating Twitter thread and analysis, but <clears throat> shout out to Trueflation. Interesting. Just give him a follow. All right, guys. Great, uh, great episode, and we will um, we'll see you next week.